Now our text tonight, 2 Corinthians 13, just starting there at verse 14, which is the last verse of the book. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Now you'll notice in this verse that all three persons of the Trinity are mentioned in this verse. God leaves a benediction, a blessing, a word from the Lord for the church that he, Paul is writing to. And you'll note here that he invokes all three persons of the Godhead. Now I want to talk a little bit on the subject of the Trinity for a few reasons. Number one, I made the decision that this is going to be the subject of our study in the high school Sunday school class uh, for the next several weeks, and we're going to be using uh, Dr. Ryan McGraw's uh, book on the Trinity, and it's a short little book, and um, it's it, it was quite good. I haven't actually finished the last part of it, but um, and I said, you know, this, this would be very helpful uh, for the whole church. So I'm going to take it more slowly in our Sunday school class, but wanted to spend a night or two talking about the Trinity. And one of the things that Dr. McGraw points out in his book is very interesting how practical the study of the Trinity is. That this is not just some theoretical type of study about the being and personhood of God, but it, it gets down to the very piety that we uh, live out of. Um, and I want to talk to you, a lot of this material comes from Dr. McGraw's book, so there's not much here that's original, which is good and safe. Um, and you don't want to be original when it comes to this topic. <laughs> so um, I want to I talk to us tonight. Now, here's another reason I wanted to do this. I have shared with you sometimes when I have watched uh, broader evangelical services on the internet, one of the things that I'll note is that the worship leader or maybe the pastor often will speak about God, and he'll use the name of God and call, and, and, but that, that's all that you ever seem to get is, well, God this and, and God that, and that the interworkings of the Godhead don't seem to be unpacked for us all that much. And the reason this is somewhat of a concern to me is because you who know something about American history and, and church history in particular in America know that, for example, in New England, which was a very uh, Calvinistic part of the country in colonial America, um, descended into Unitarianism over time. So that a, a lot of these Trinitarian strong churches and congregations um, descended into a type of Unitarianism. Now, what is Unitarianism? Unitarianism, as it sounds, means that they emphasize the oneness of God, and that's true, uh, but they denied the three persons of the Godhead. And particularly, they denied Jesus being equal in power and glory with the Father, and that he did not share in the fullness of the Father's deity. Uh, whereas you, you who are studying the Westminster Shorter Catechism, young people, you know that our catechism teaches that the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are equal in power and glory with the Father, right? 
Say, right. <laughs> you know that. That, that. that God in his three persons um, exist from all eternity and that each person of the Godhead is fully God. And this is the great mystery. God is one. The Bible teaches this in the beginning. Uh, that, that the Lord thy God is one. That it's called the Shema in Hebrew, which Shema translates to listen or hearken. And so they would say in Hebrew, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. The Lord, the Lord thy God is one. But as you move through the Bible, the Bible begins to unpack more about the being of God, that God is also three. God is one eternal being, but he exists in three distinct persons, and that each person is fully God. The Father is fully God. The Son is fully God, and the Spirit is fully God. You should not think of God, says Dr. McGraw, as a pie, in which there are three slices. And a third is God, and another person is a third of God, and another person is a third of God. That is not what the Orthodox view of the Trinity is, nor what the Bible teaches. The Trinity is unpacked much more clearly, though it is there in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, it comes to a much fuller expression. Dr. McGraw says that the Trinity is almost like a canvas on which we would paint. And that is that the Bible doesn't try to do a deep apologetic and prove the Trinity, but rather, as it explains the gospel, the gospel cannot be understood without the Trinity. And, and so, uh, we, we um, understand that God is one and there is a unity to God. But also, the person, persons of God are revealed as you move through the Bible. Deuteronomy 32, 31 says, There is no other gods. There is only one God. Isaiah speaks against the idolatry of his day in satire. You remember where Isaiah confronts the people of God and he says, you guys, you cut down a tree and you take part of the wood from that tree and you chop it up and you make a fire and you warm yourself by the fire and you, you put your dough in the pan over the fire and you make your bread and you eat your bread and, and you're satisfied by the warmth of the fire and the cooking that the fire brings to your bread and and then he says, but then you take another portion of that same tree and you carve for yourself an idol and you bow down to the idol. And, of course, Isaiah is mocking them for doing that. that don't you realize what you're doing here? Our God is the living God. Our God is the God who is spirit and we must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so... You have, when you go through the New Testament, um, God is referred to as the Father. Now, why is this? Why, why does sometimes Paul speak of the Father as God and not the Son and not the Spirit all the time? Well, there's a reason for that, because the Father is the one who represents the majesty of God. But the Bible says that the only way to the majesty of the Father is through the Son. 
and also in the Spirit. And so anytime we sing, or worship, or pray, or even contemplate God, we should think of God in his oneness, but also his threeness. I come to God the Father, who is the first person of the Trinity. I do so through the work of the Son. We, we don't come as the Pharisee who, who comes in his own merit. I thank thee, God, that I'm not like other men. And he begins to tick off all the things that he believes he has reason to be heard. We come through, rather, the merits of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Very God of very God, but who became a man for us. Um, McGraw says that in Jesus Christ, you know, we have... You have one who is a mediator between two parties, God and man. And in Jesus Christ, he, he represents God to man, and he represents man to God. Uh, and only Christ can do that. So we come to the Father through Jesus Christ always. No man, says Jesus, comes to the Father, but what? By me. And then we do so in the Spirit. The Spirit precedes the from the Father and the Son. And so it is through the Spirit that we have newness of life. The gift of faith comes by way of the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who gives you faith in Jesus Christ. He's the one that opens your eyes, unplugs your ears. It's the Spirit, the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is the same who lives within you. And he says, we've been raised, not uh, physically yet, but we've been raised spiritually with Christ. Christ was raised physically from the dead and now is with the Father. And so you have that phrase in Ephesians where we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. How are we seated with Christ in the heavenlies? By the Spirit. The Spirit has raised us <coughs> with Christ. And so where Christ is, uh, there is a sense we are, are with him even though we are still in this world. And the same Spirit who has raised us spiritually from the dead... He will one day raise us bodily from the dead also. The, the, the great work of the Spirit to be done at the consummation will be when Christ says, come forth, and the Spirit of God will miraculously raise our bodies from the earth as Jesus Christ was bodily raised and glorified. But we will be raised. And what we have to understand is that every act of redemption by God all three persons of the Godhead are always involved. Um, whenever God does something, whether it be creation, whether it be the incarnation, whether it be the work of the cross, whether it be the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, it involves all three persons of the Trinity in each of those great redemptive acts. All three persons are always involved in everything. Now, the New Testament tells us that the Son is fully God. Uh, explicitly, he tells us that. If you have your Bible, let me invite you to turn with me. Uh, let's look at John chapter 1, and verse 48. John chapter 1, just show you a couple texts where we see uh, evidence of the deity of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> now, if you go to a liberal school... Um, they will try to dissuade you that Jesus is fully God. I remember a religion professor seeking to dissuade me and one of my roommates of that position. 
not to believe uh, that Jesus was fully God, that, 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 that he was not deity in the flesh, uh, to which my roommate said, but Jesus received worship, <laughs> which I thought was a pretty good answer. But let's look at, look at John 1, 48. <clears throat> uh, John chapter 1, verse 48. <coughs> Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Well, how did, how did Christ see Nathanael? Now, liberals might try to explain that away, that they were off somewhere and Jesus happened to see him and at the distance, but that's not what Jesus is saying, and that's not what impresses Nathanael. <laughs> no, it's the omniscience of the deity of Christ. The, the divine side, the divine, or excuse me, essence in, in the Christ. Christ has two natures, a human nature and a divine nature, and it, it was through the, that divine nature, using his omniscience, he saw Nathaniel, and notice Nathaniel's response to this. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So notice it elicited a, a response of faith. Nathaniel was sufficiently impressed. There was no way, humanly speaking, that Jesus could have known what Nathaniel had been doing prior to Philip calling him. And yet, Jesus says, I saw you. And then if you look at John chapter 8 and verse 58, John 8 and verse 58, <clears throat> excuse me, John 8, verse 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Now that may not stand out to us, but it certainly stood out to the religious leadership of Jesus' day. Because what was Jesus saying? Why did they take up stones to try and stone Jesus on that one sentence? What Jesus was saying is that before Abraham was born, or before Abraham existed, and then he used that word, I am. Remember where that phrase, I am, first appears? It's in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush. Moses says, okay, I'll go, and I'll go talk to your people, and tell him it's time to leave Egypt, but who am I going to say sent me? And God says, tell them I am. Period. And so when Jesus says that before Abraham existed, I am, they recognized that Jesus was making a claim to divinity. He was claiming equality with the Father. And, and Jesus was trying to make this point, you know, regularly. I and the Father are one, but they didn't want to hear about it. Um, just like your, your Jehovah's Witnesses don't want to hear about it today. And when they come to your door and they knock on your door, they, they do not hold to the view that I'm articulating here from John chapter 8. They, they believe that uh, the Son was created in, uh, as the first act of God's creation. <coughs> what Jesus is saying, no, I existed with the Father in eternity. I and the Father are one. And to see me is to see the Father, and to hear me is to hear the Father. Why? Because the Father tells me what to say. 
I speak only those words which the Father gives me to speak. And before Abraham, before the God ever entered into a covenant with Abraham, or Abraham was even born, I existed. This is essentially what Jesus was saying. He was not a mere man. He was the eternal Son of God who became man. He added to his divine nature a human nature conceived by the Spirit of God in the womb of the Virgin Mary and brought forth from her without any sin. And then also the New Testament tells us that not only is Jesus fully God, but the Spirit is fully God as well. Look at Acts chapter 5. In your Bible, go <coughs> one book over. Acts chapter 5. <coughs> Excuse me. Acts chapter 5. <coughs> and look at verse 3. Acts chapter 5. And verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Remember they asked Ananias, how much did you sell the property for? Did you sell it for this much? And he said, yeah, yeah I sold it for that much. Remember, he, he, he sold it for more and he kept some back. So he was it, the sin was... Not that he was only giving a portion of the sales, the proceeds, but the, the, the sin was that he was claiming that the whole value of the land had been given to the church. And so, he, so Peter says to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie, notice here, to the Holy Spirit, and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? So you see, it wasn't the fact that he kept some of it back. It was that he was lying about how much he sold it for. He said, and after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? Now, here's the part I want you to see that it relates to tonight's message. You have not lied to men, but to God. Now, notice what Peter just said there. Because if you look at verse 3, who did Peter say Ananias lied to? He said, you have lied to the Holy Spirit, verse 3. And then he repeats it in verse 4, but he doesn't say you have lied to the Holy Spirit again, but he says you've lied to what? To God. So what's, what is the point? The point is here that to lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God. So that the Holy Spirit is also fully God. He is not a mere force. Again, the Jehovah's Witnesses who come to your door, what they tell you is that the Spirit, number one, is not a person. And they'll say, but he's a power, an impersonal power. But the Spirit is not impersonal. He is a person, and to lie to the person of the Spirit is to lie to God. The person of the Spirit also is fully God. The person of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, can be grieved. You can't grieve a force. You can grieve a person. You, 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 can't, um, you can't just grieve something that does not have personality. Or excuse me, you can't just grieve a, a mere power, but a personality, rather. The Spirit has divine attributes. We're told that the Holy Spirit searches our hearts. Um, the, the Spirit of God in Genesis brings order out of chaos. The Spirit hovered over the creation. 
The Spirit, we are told, strives with men. We are baptized into the name that includes the Holy Spirit. So he is not just a divine force, but he is, as the Nicene Creed says, the very person of God. Uh, We can quench the Spirit, his influences, we're told. The Bible tells us here. All three persons are mentioned in our baptism. We are baptized into the name of God. And in, the, in God, we are baptized Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see, even at Jesus' own baptism, all three persons of the Trinity are involved. What is Jesus doing at, at his baptism? He is praying to the Father. And he is obeying the Father. The Spirit has been sent by the Father and rests upon Christ. So the whole Godhead, we have to understand, and this is where it gets very mysterious, the whole Godhead is always represented by each person of the Trinity. So while one person may be at the forefront of a particular redemptive act of God, we should not think that only that person thereby is there. Does that make sense? Every time the Spirit does something, there's a sense that in the Spirit doing something, the whole Godhead is doing something. So when when Jesus is dying on the cross, it is not merely Jesus at work on the cross, but the whole of the Godhead is at work in what Jesus is doing on the cross. What is the Father doing? He is pouring out his judgment on the Son. What is the Spirit doing? The Spirit is sustaining the Son. So the the Son is continuing to obey. Remember, Jesus is being tempted to come off the cross. Come off the cross and we will believe on you, but he stays on the cross. He tells Peter, put up the sword. Why? Don't you know? I can call down legions of angels and deliver me. But Christ is sustained by the Spirit. The Spirit is upon him. He is the anointed one. And so... Everything that Jesus does by his preaching, his teaching, his miracles, he does so by the influence and and the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit. So all of our redemption is triune in nature. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all involved in every aspect of our redemption. Just as all three persons of the Trinity were involved in the creation, God the Father declared, let there be light. The New Testament tells us that Christ also with the Father brought forth the creation, the Spirit there hovering. So that Dr. McGraw notes here, he says the Trinity is the thread of the New Testament that if we pull that out, everything falls apart as it relates to our redemption. We can't understand anything about our redemption apart from understanding the Trinity. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Just talk about the Trinity and the plan of salvation. It's probably, I don't have time to go as far as my notes tonight probably, but look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and look at verse 1 and 2. First Peter chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered 
throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Now that verse there, in verse 2 particularly, you could probably preach three sermons, three, four sermons out of that single verse. Notice how Peter, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is telling us about the work of each person of the Godhead in your salvation. Notice here that he writes to these Christians who are scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And he names the places, Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, etc. Notice then what he says about these Christians that he's writing to. He says, number one, you are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So what is Peter saying? Peter's saying the same thing Paul says in Ephesians 1. That in your redemption, where does your, your redemption in some sense begin? It begins with God choosing you before the foundation of the earth. He chose you to be what? Ephesians 1 tells us to be holy and to be blameless and to be able to stand one day in the presence of God with great joy. And this was the work. Again, every work involves all the Trinity, but the Father is at the forefront of this work, right? The Father chooses us. Notice here it says that it is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, a lot of Christians come to that verse and they say, you see, this choosing of God is based on his omniscience. God knows everything and he knows everybody who will accept his son, Jesus Christ. And on the basis of that knowledge, he chooses those who will accept Jesus. That's not what Peter's saying here. That's not how we're supposed to understand foreknowledge here. What Peter is saying is that this word foreknowledge often can be understood and expressed as God's love. When, when, for example, when Adam knew his wife, that's not like Adam giving intellectual assent to the existence of his wife. When Adam know, knew his wife, that showed a personal love and intimacy between husband and wife. Here, what Peter is saying here is that you were chosen in Jesus Christ according to that deep love and fellowship, that intimacy of God the Father. He, that is, he chose you not because he saw you would choose Jesus, you chose Jesus because God first chose you before the foundation of the earth. That's what Peter's saying. Jesus said the same thing to his disciples, didn't he? You did not choose me, Jesus said to his disciples. I chose you. Look, if it were up to us, none of us would choose Jesus. You and I chose Jesus because of God's grace. We're not smarter, more clever, or wiser than other people. And there are lots of other people who have read the Bible, and they've heard sermons, and they've gone to church, and they don't follow Jesus. Why? Why do we? Only by the grace of God. Because you were chosen. Peter, Peter tells us this to, to build up assurance. You know, the doctrine of election is, is, a, is a comforting doctrine. It, it's there not to destroy assurance, but to build assurance. 
to know that if God has so loved me and has gone to all the effort of choosing me, even before he said, let there be light, even before Genesis chapter 1, I was chosen in Christ, then I can have an assurance of God's great love for me, and I can persevere by his grace, by his power. So we see that in, in salvation here, um, redemption is being unfolded by Peter, and he begins with election, with the Father. But then it doesn't stop with the Father, does it? He says, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. <clears throat> so that the Spirit, what is the Spirit's role in redemption? He calls you to faith in Jesus Christ, doesn't he? The Father has loved you. The Father has chosen you. And so the Spirit begins to work in your life. And he calls you. How does he call you? Is it an audible voice, boys and girls? No. Don't, don't sit on the edge of your bed in your room waiting to hear a voice. How does he speak to you? He speaks to us through his word. He's given us the scriptures. And the scriptures are powerful unto salvation, the Bible says. And so the Holy Spirit calls us effectually through the word and brings us, builds up faith within us so that we begin to believe in Jesus Christ. We do as Levi did. Jesus says, Levi, follow me. What does he do? He gets out of his tax collector's booth and he begins to follow Jesus. That's really a picture of effectual calling, isn't it? Levi wasn't looking for Jesus, was he? <laughs> nope. Some of you were not looking for Jesus when you found him, right? <laughs> you were running away. The Apostle Paul wasn't looking for Jesus, certainly on the road to Damascus, was he? Did Paul want Jesus? No. He's persecuting the church. He's looking for Christians to arrest and put to death. Paul doesn't want Jesus. But by the end of that journey, by the time he gets to Damascus, he wants Jesus, doesn't he? What changed? The Spirit of God changed Paul's life. God humbled him, knocked him off his high horse, and, and, uh, but gave him the gift of faith in Jesus Christ. Who art thou, Lord? It's Jesus, whom you're persecuting. The Father calls the Spirit uh, the Father predestines, rather, elects, chooses us, loves us from eternity past. The Spirit calls us. And, of course, we know what Jesus has done for us, right? We are called to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Jesus Christ came into the world to secure that salvation. Not just make it possible for you to get saved, as it's often presented. You hear that all the time, especially here in the South. You know, Jesus came so you could get saved. No, he came to save. Not just open a door and ask, do you want to go in? He came, he dies on a cross to save us. That, 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 what, is the, what is the purchase price for our redemption? It is the blood of Christ given to atone for our sins that we've committed. Father plans it, the Son secures it, and the Spirit applies it. It's the threefold work of redemption. Now again, 
we should never think of the one person of the Trinity as ever separated or divorced from the others. One may be taking the lead, but all are always involved. So that when, when the Son is involved, the other two persons are involved. When the Father is taking the lead, it's not as though the Spirit and Christ have nothing to do with our being chosen. The Father chooses us, what? In Christ. So, one of the things that, uh, that we see here is that when we think of, of, of God and we conceive of God, one of my concerns, as I said at the beginning, is that we're not thinking of God as we should, as, as the triune God revealed in the scriptures. I am concerned that we may, in evangelical circles, be opening ourselves to a, a second wave of Unitarianism if we do not emphasize the threeness of God as well as the oneness uh, of, of the Lord. Um, I have a lot more notes here. Let me say this um, in, in conclusion. The, the Trinity should not be thought as an arid and distant doctrine. But this is very personal to us because knowing God in his triunity, in, in his triunion, is to commune with the living God. We, as we think about the roles, if you will, of the persons of the Trinity, it helps us, I think, one of the things we are told to do is to walk with the Lord. How do I walk with God? Um, how, how should I think of him? How should I relate to him? And I think when we study the Trinity, one of the things that is very helpful, it will help you in your prayer life, I think it will help you in your meditation, I think it will help you as you sing the praises of God, um, even you know, as we sing the Psalms that often are, are written by the Spirit's inspiration using that old covenantal language of sacrifices. You know, we, we, we need to think of God in his one being in three persons. And that, I, um, as Samuel Rutherford said, that when I think of God, I do not know which person I love the most. That all three persons of the Godhead are equally lovely to me. And that I think on any one of them, and then I think on all three of them. And when I think of the oneness of God, I think of the threeness of God. And when I think of the threeness of God, I think of that unity, that God is one in his being. Um, these are deep things. The Trinity is a tremendous mystery. Paul says, who can know the mind of God but the spirit of God? These things are, are far above us, but yet God has spoken to us in the word as one would speak to an infant, a tender young child in baby talk. God has revealed who he is, and we can, by grace, through faith, apprehend. Will we ever comprehend God? No. We are a creature. So even in our glorified creatureliness in the new heavens and new earth, we will never comprehend him. But God has given us everything 
we need to know in this life and for the life to come to apprehend him truly and savingly. So that I come to God, I come to God, to the Father, as the representative of the majesty of God. And I come always through Jesus Christ, never in myself, that I come in the Spirit of God. For God desires to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this uh, lesson tonight. And we know, Lord, there's so much more to delve into in this subject. But, Lord, we have scratched the surface and pray that uh, the Spirit would continue to apply the word we have heard tonight. Thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself to us in the Scriptures, our one true God in three persons. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen.